Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to join us. I am the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. These tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. We know that employers spend a lot of time and energy on the entire employee life cycle, from sourcing to onboarding, straight through retention, engagement, and of course, training. An important part of keeping your employees happy involves preventing harassment among your employees, as well as having functional policies for addressing harassment when it occurs. Without useful and successful training, both preventing and handling sexual harassment can be very challenging. Today we are joined by a sexual harassment training expert, Morgan Mercer. Morgan is the Chief Executive Officer of Vantage Point. That's an organization that strives to leverage virtual reality, immersive technology to tackle complex training challenges, such as sexual harassment training. Prior to founding Vantage Point, she concurrently served as the head of digital for an e-commerce startup and an analyst for a digital agency where she has worked on high-profile contracts focused on attitude change and behavior change within the domain of complex social issues. Uh, Among many other places, she has been featured on the BBC, in British Vogue, Bloomberg, The Guardian, Wired, VentureBeat, and like I said, many other places. Morgan, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We're really excited to have you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let's jump right in. How did you realize that sexual harassment training was a space that could use innovation? Absolutely. That's a, you know, a really great question. So when you think about things that have to do with um, any inherent level of emotion or empathy, right? Um, so, so something such as sexual harassment training or, or the issue as an overall problem, what you realize is that it's actually incredibly hard to explain a feeling to somebody and and for anybody who's actually tried to explain um you know the feeling of being uncomfortable you know then that rings true so it's really hard to explain what discomfort feels like especially to somebody else who hasn't experienced it and you find yourself drawing a lot of parallels and you know kind of making these associations so that it makes sense to another person so you know Kind of what I've realized about things like anti-sexual harassment training is that explaining discomfort, explaining the elephant in the room, explaining what it feels like to feel like you're the victim of a microaggression or that, you know, somebody is leveraging um, a job benefit or even a position in order to get what they want. Those are things that, you know, if you haven't gone through it, it's really hard to understand. And a lot of times they look fine on paper. Um, You know, but it really comes down to the tonality, the situational relevancy, the context of the situation, the body language, the invasion of personal space, um, you know, etc. So so there are kind of all of these details that aren't black and white. So then when you look at the existing forms of training, you see, okay, how are we approaching this problem, right? Um, And a lot of it, unfortunately, is explaining it to somebody else you know it's it's Mm -hmm. the instructor-led training or it's a 2d video where sure you can see but you don't feel um and so then you look at 
new mediums of technology, right? And how can these modalities really, you know, shift that and and add a little bit more context in the in the form of feeling and in the form of empathy? And you realize that VR has been applied for so many other impactful forms of training because you can simulate those feelings. You can simulate the high pressure, high stakes situation. You can simulate the feeling of having, you know, peer pressure, or you can simulate that feeling of the invasion of personal space, you know, somebody leaning in or, or seeing somebody do that to somebody else. And so when you can actually create that feeling instead of explaining the feeling and then tie that feeling to an action, that's when you're going to have training that's highly effective. And, and that's actually backed by research. It's actually called um, state-dependent learning. And so, you know, really it, it was why aren't we having the retention rates and the efficacy rates that we're hoping to see from training? And you realize that a lot of training isn't relevant to the ways that we need to learn these high high pressure high stakes you know topics yeah that's uh it's very interesting um i know i read a study about you know i have a young daughter and um they're talking about how kids at her age around two years old know when they're looking at educational material that a scenario doesn't apply to them you know that it's uh Mm -hmm. that they're just experiencing kind of a external simulation and that they don't engage with the material in the way that we we all really hoped (laughs) hoped that they would you know you hope you pop them down in front of uh, Sesame Street and they you know absorb more of more of what's going on than they than they might really do and I could see those parallels in what you're talking about um what what do you think the unique and innovative parts of looking to the application of new technology for corporate training areas like sexual harassment training are? Absolutely. That's a, you know, another great question. So, you know, one thing that I encourage people to see is that these new technology modalities like virtual reality, it's not just a technology, it's actually a platform. Um, And so looking at it as a technology is actually incredibly limiting. And I encourage people to look at it more so like you would look at your cell phone or your computer. So with things like VR-based training, you can actually look at things like engagement, right? Where are people looking? Um, You know, are they paying attention to the conversation that's happening in front of them? Or are they paying attention to the... um, the poster in the background, the trash can in the the corner of the room. But you can actually take that further and you can leverage virtual reality in conjunction with technologies like computer vision. And then you can get deeper, right? And you can see how long did these people or, you know, your employees, your users engage with a character that was overtly aggressive versus a character that was perceived as assertive and how does that perception influence the actions they took and you know take that one step further you can leverage things like voice recognition to do the same thing and see you know by the sentiment and tone your employees use how are they perceiving this topic at a baseline and how are they perceiving the topic after training and so you know one of the really unique aspects of leveraging new technologies for things like anti-sexual harassment training is that you get these analytics, you get these data points that you've never historically had. Um, and, and you actually have an understanding of the ways that your employees are thinking about these topics. And then from there, you can start to do things like derive industry insights. You can look at things like predictive analytics, right? And you can actually 
see already how AI has come in and completely transformed the HR space on all of these other topics, right? Recruiting, hiring, um, improving hiring processes to reduce bias, et cetera. And so just imagine the possibilities that this unlocks within the corporate training world. I find it very interesting. Um, yeah, I'd love to I'd love to see what that looks like. You know, we haven't gotten to do any virtual reality training over here of any kind. And uh, if I ever get to if I ever get to go to one of those trade shows where they have something set up, I'd love to take a look at it. Um, how do you plan and organize program and instructional design for something that's just so heavily compliance oriented? Absolutely. So, you know, one thing that's really unique to VR is that you have to think through it in a completely different way because there's no way that you can be immersed in a situation and sit and almost explain the situation or act out the situation in front of the person to the end user without breaking that third wall. And so the effectiveness of immersive mediums really comes from feeling engaged and immersed in your environment. So you have to feel like you are a part of the environment and you have to feel like you have influence over the outcome of the environment. But then you have to find a way to do that in a, in a way that's natural, right? And then when you look at compliance, and, and so that's the, the component of designing for the medium. But then when you look at instructional design around things that are compliance oriented, you almost add in a few additional factors there, right? Because you have to look at not just these time and length requirements, but very substantial content requirements as well. Mm-hmm. So it really needs to show you know, quid pro quo harassment, but that has to happen within a specific context. And it needs to show, um, you know, kind of a subset of all of these other problems falling under quid pro quo harassment, or something like abusive conduct, etc. And so then you're really thinking about, okay, how do I design a scenario that feels believable, feels realistic, isn't going to feel fake, um, you know, when you place somebody into it, but you have to design something that's trauma-informed and you have to make sure that every single workflow that a user goes through hits every single compliance requirement. So what we actually did is we have all of these giant like webbing maps where we had to go through and we had to map out essentially all of the different requirements across all of the different states. We had to look at where there was overlap and where there wasn't. We had to look at you know, a variety of scenarios that fulfilled one of the requirements or a few of the requirements. And then we had to actually go out, we interviewed people, um, you know, we did a lot of research on both case law and on people who are speaking out and on how these situations actually unfold. And then we actually ended up working with both subject matter experts and employment lawyers. And we had to build out these stories almost in these different narratives mm. around all of the different compliance topics. And then we had to undergo compliance reviews where you know law firms had to sit and go through every single possible workflow and make sure that they all hit all compliance requirements. So it's really unique and interesting in the sense of, you know, you're not just designing the instructional design component around the requirements on paper, and you're not just throwing, you know, a ton of information into a pamphlet and distributing it. You actually have to think about how to make it relatable to everybody without breaking the third wall and without taking them out of the experience. Yeah, those 
those are just a few of the challenges I imagine um, that you had to solve when you're trying to figure out how to deliver training in this way. Um, what what other challenges did you have? Absolutely. So, you know, some of the other challenges are how do you make it as accessible and user friendly as possible? And so a lot of times when people think of things like accessibility, they think of things like, you know, how do you make an accessible um you know, web interface, right? How do you make sure that the colors are accessible? How do you make sure that, um, you know, it's accessible to a variety of different people? But when you think about things like a new form of technology, you have to recognize that a lot of times people might not have tried it or people might have an early level of familiarity with the technology. And, you know, you also have to think about not only your end user, but the buyer, right? So for us, that's HR. And HR is typically going to be administering the training. So how do we make sure that our program solves what we're trying to do, which is provide the most effective training without adding any additional um, you know, challenges in the form of logistical challenges or scheduling challenges or whatever it might be? And so we had to think through things like accessibility in the sense of how do we train in users who might have used virtual reality hardware before? How do we train in users who might have never heard of virtual reality before? How do we build that onboarding into our program design without acting on the assumption of either one, right? I don't want to be placed into an experience where I'm going through an hour of onboarding with the assumption that I've never used VR if I use VR every weekend. On the other hand, I don't want to be placed into a VR headset with the assumption that I'm familiar with how it works if I've never used it before. So how do we create onboarding throughout the program that's intuitive, that guides the user, that can tell when the user is having trouble? You know, how do we create accessibility in that sense, and then how do we make sure that it's easy to use and easy to manage, easy to distribute, easy to come in, check the headsets out, you know, and and that it works across all of these different environments, locations, and settings. You know, something occurs to me. Um, what you know, the goal of this is to make people that are experiencing. I, I assume they're not the subject of sexual harassment during the uh, during the simulations, right? Exactly. Absolutely. So, I, I mean, of course, right? <laughs> but yeah, there, we, so there, we would never. <laughs> <laughs> but they, you know, you, you, the idea is to make it real, real for them enough that they are taking something away from it, so that they're, as you mentioned earlier, feeling the feelings that people, you know, really feeling the experience. Um, is there a risk, and and how did you approach the risk of someone feeling too uncomfortable during during training? That Yeah, that's a really good question. So first and foremost, everything that we do is trauma-informed. We actually had um, somebody who specializes in trauma-informed program design Mm. as one of the subject matter experts on board. So everything we do is trauma-informed. We ensure that nothing could be potentially triggering. There's no victim-blaming, victim-shaming, etc. And that was a really, really, really important line that we never wanted to cross, right? And right. We, we never want to cross. Um, a, a lot of the research, so when you look at the effectiveness of virtual reality for training, it's incredibly impactful, incredibly visceral, incredibly real. So you almost have to err on the side of caution, right? right. And I've had people come to me and say, 
well, why don't you do like a first person, you know, simulation? And I'm like, what exactly? A lot of times, you know, when people say that it's completely thoughtless and mindless in the sense of you have to think about every single person could potentially have hidden trauma that they've suppressed and you risk the, you know, you run the risk of potentially triggering that. And and that's the last thing you want to do. And so actually, when you look at studies, um, one of my good friends who runs a virtual reality company where they essentially leverage EEG and EMG and you think happy thoughts and the happy thoughts change the environment around you. So like you think of positive things, you see butterflies hatch, you think of negative things, the environment gets worse. Yeah. And then they actually hook you up to sensors so you can see how your brain waves are influencing the program. What they actually found was that they placed somebody, you know, they were working with, um, a program with disabilities. And when you were watching somebody else, you know, with, with disabilities struggle with issues, you had significantly more empathy than when you were placed in the first person scenario of that same situation. And so, you know, then when you think about the ways that humans form relationships, it, it can be just as impactful because if I'm sitting here and my friend comes to me and my friend tells me, you know, hey, Morgan, here's what happened to me at work. I feel really upset. It's going to trigger a very similar response in me where I'm like, oh my gosh, how can I help her? What can I do? And that's what we want, right? We want to leverage user agency. So your ability to influence the world around you. And we want to train people on how they can do that in a positive way. And we want to show people how not leveraging their agency can actually impact the situation negatively, right? So speak up sooner, the situation is the best it can be and speak up in the right way. Every single person can always do a better job. Um, You know, so that was a really crucial moment of our program design where we decided, number one, we will never do a first person simulation. Number two, everything has to be trauma informed. And number three, you know, we, we have subject matter experts who work with survivors of, you know, harassment of sexual violence, etc. on our team who can sit here and say, you know, this is, this comes too close or no, this is, you know, it, it hits the nail on the head. It's something that's relatable, but it's not going to push the envelope for somebody who might have that trauma. That's, um, that's a great answer and a little bit, a little bit of a relief. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was very interesting about the the empathy feeling, you know, uh, more powerful empathy in a simulation. If it was, if you were watching someone else struggle, than watching, you know, than experiencing the struggle yourself. Um, I imagine that you know we've we've all watched the evolution of you know the Me Too movement and back in the Anita Hill uh, situation that that kind of petered out and didn't do what a lot of people really hoped it would do. You know, a lot of that revolves around misconceptions and myths surrounding sexual harassment. Um, do you mind addressing you know, what, what are those myths? Why, why are they there? You know, how are they formed? And, and if there is uh, anywhere that they're going in the next 10 or 20 years? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, so you're completely right when you look at how far we've come thus far and and it's it's actually incredible i had the opportunity to speak alongside 
Anita Hill at her conference at her summit and I had the opportunity to meet her. And so I sat there and I spent, you know, hours in the morning um, because she's such a role model of mine watching the videos and you see the videos of a room, you know, full of men, unfortunately asking her, are you a scorned woman? You know, yeah. are you retaliating against us? What do you have against us, etc." cetera? Um, you know, and, and so now you look at where we are today and you see this massive social movement, Me Too, just happen. And what that really did was it raised a lot of awareness for the prevalence of the problem. But, you know, a lot of times people, and this is something that we actually address through a lot of our content, you know, one of my favorite misconceptions to actually educate people on, or actually there are two, one is that a lot of times people assume sexual harassment only happens when the female is in a weaker position or when she's a subordinate. And actually, that's not true. Women in positions of power are actually 138% more likely to be harassed. And the reason for that is because sexual harassment is a power dynamic. So it is, you know, either I want to display my power over you or I want to take your power away. And so that's bi-directional. And that happens whether a female is a subordinate or whether she's a manager, right? Or whether she's a leader in a company. And so that's something really unique that we're going to have to accept, acknowledge, and face head on as we have this push for more female leadership in companies. When you look at you know female executives only, I think the latest statistics is 5% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. And so as we start to try to push that up to 50, and you know, <laughs> I, I would love to see us push it further than that, but <laughs> as we try to push that up to 50%, that's something we're going to have to approach head on because if we don't, we're not creating an environment that's conducive of that, you know, and, and where women can even rise to that. And then kind of alongside that in conjunction with it, a lot of times people think, oh, well, you know, if sexual harassment happens, the only parties affected are the ones who were directly involved. When actually research and studies show that being a bystander of harassment or having it happen within the same ecosystem, actually the secondary impacts and effects are typically almost as great as being a first-person victim of it. And so it's really important to actually understand how it's influencing your workforce's culture outside of, you know, looking at it kind of within this vacuum and within this funnel. And so over the next 10 years, I see as we have this push for gender parity, you know, as we have this push for inclusiveness, inclusion, um, female leadership, etc., we're really going to have to redefine our definition of sexual harassment. We're going to have to like redefine the ways that we're viewing the impacts it has and the different groups and populations it affects. And then I see that even 20 years further, once we have ideally, you know, gender equality and, and gender parity and female representation and leadership, I see that one kind of core thing we're ignoring right now is the LGBTQ community. Mm -hmm. And so while a lot of states have things around abusive conduct and, you know, bullying based on sexual orientation or the assumption of sexual orientation, you know, a lot of times I feel like that's almost one component of the problem that isn't as actively discussed. And I think that 
you know, that's that's a discussion we're going to start having a lot more of over the next 20 years. Yeah, it's a it's a great point. I know that, you know, I think it's as we write about, I think it's like 23 states have protections for discrimination, workplace discrimination against um, LGBTQ uh, people. And that means that the rest of them do not. And uh, Mm -hmm. there's no federal guidelines right now. I mean, there's, I think most of the Fortune 500 companies realize that they should include that kind of protection uh, and do. But, you know, that only represents a small fraction of all the all the employers out there. So it's, um, that's a great point. Um, you know, we talked about awareness. What, what do you think the difference between awareness and change is? Yeah, so, you know, with, with movements like hashtag me too, you see an incredible amount of awareness, right? So one thing I actually love to share with people and love to educate people on is that we've had half a dozen massive social movements around workplace harassment globally within the last decade. Hmm. And um, Me Too was the most, you know, it, it created the most awareness, but we've actually had a lot of others. There, there was one in Japan, there's one in Germany, um, Finland, France have had their own, etc. And so, you know, the one core distinction that I make between awareness and change is that you can have mass awareness, right? You can have, everybody can be aware of the problem, but change is putting an actionable, you know, plan or putting concrete actionable steps behind the problem to change the outcome. And so change comes in the form of, New York and California strengthening their regulations around, you know, workplace harassment um, prevention tra- training requirements, right? Around all of these other governments looking at incorporating training or requiring training for the first time in history. It comes around, um, you know, kind of broadening the definition. You have all of these coalitions, organizations, groups um, of volunteers rising up and saying, okay, we'll provide you financial relief, we'll provide you legal services, etc. you know, if you want to speak out. And so that's change, because you're creating a new ecosystem to support the reduction of the problem. You know, just being aware of the problem is something that can lead to change, but it's not enough. And so, you know, that's kind of the core distinction I make between what awareness is and where change comes in. So how has awareness um, through movements like Me Too and the other ones that you mentioned, how do they lead to change historically? And, you know, what do you think about how they're going to lead to change in the next five or 10 years? Absolutely. So, you know, I found it really interesting, um, actually, what you said about the number of states that don't have protections against discrimination for you know protected categories so when you look at waves of feminism we're actually you know we've had numerous waves of feminism leading up to this and so there there are articles on how some of those waves of feminism have had you know legitimate change in the form of um 
you know, of legal outcomes. So whether those are regulatory outcomes or, you know, expansion of protection. So one wave of feminism was women should have rights, right? Women's suffrage, women's right to vote. The next wave of, of you know, change around that was, okay, but what about Black women, right? You know, and now, now we have to also look at, as we're tackling things like racism, we have to look at um, minority groups of women within that because they were excluded from the conversation. And then the next wave of change, you know, took that one step further. And so kind of going back to what, what we just discussed, a lot of times there's kind of this buildup beforehand um, where you have this paradigm shift and then all of a sudden, as you're operating within that new paradigm shift, you realize a lot of things that once were okay are no longer okay anymore. And they, they were never okay in the sense of ethically and morally. It's just something where you didn't quite have the structures in place to enforce, you know, um, that it wasn't ethically or morally okay. And and so as we kind of redefine that, we have these different paradigm shifts, then, you know, it's kind of like this gradual buildup and then it, you know, and, and then it explodes, so to speak, um, where a lot of people say, okay, no, this isn't okay. I'm sick of dealing, you know, with this and we need to do something about it. And I'm going to step behind this movement. I'm going to step behind this cause, this issue, this problem that affects me, and I'm going to do something about it. And so I think that with me too, we see a lot of, a lot of focus on, um, you know, the regulatory side of things, as I mentioned before, but I see that, Again, going back to protected classes of individuals, I think that that's what we're going to see next. And, and I do think that we are still leaving out of the conversation minority groups. So one thing that we placed a lot of emphasis on and that we really had to think through when we were casting for these roles and when we were even having these scripts written is that minority groups almost feel double marginalized, right? And yeah. that's not that's a conversation we're not having because as a minority group, you already lack the representation. You already feel marginalized because you're part of the 1%, part of the 2%, part of the 5%, whatever it might be. And then on top of that, to face something like discrimination or harassment, you have the sense of double marginalization. And so I think that one of these upcoming movements that we'll see will be heavily oriented around that because I think that that's a conversation we're ignoring that we should be having and we should be having now. That's a, that's a great answer. Um, just a little bit off topic, but, um, you know, I know that, you know, we're talking about awareness and there's this talk about the census that's coming up and, you know, previously they haven't asked people if they're transgender or if, you know, mm -hmm. And so there just aren't numbers there. Like, mm -hmm. never, never mind the social movement. I'm not disregarding it, but if we put it aside for a second, people just don't yeah. even know how many people are being influenced by this. And, and I've always looked at that as a by design so that mm -hmm. it, we don't have to address it because it's a challenging topic. You know, um, I just think that's, that's interesting, you know. And, and then, of course, people resist getting those census questions added for all kinds of reasons. But, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. it's like if we don't know the extent of the people affected, how can we make any changes? Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. You know, 
that's that's an incredible point um let's talk about sexual harassment and inclusion uh specifically how are they linked and how are they different in a corporate work environment absolutely so um (laughs) you know one of one of the things that I really like is that, you know, diversity is being invited to the party, inclusion is being asked to dance. (laughs) So, you know, it's not just being asked to come take a seat at the table. It's actually having the opportunity to speak up, but not just having the opportunity, right? Not just being given a voice, but having an environment that's conducive to that and that facilitates that. And, you know, so I think that sexual harassment kind of falls under the greater umbrella of inclusion. When I think about things, you know, because sexual harassment pertains to protected classes, it also pertains to women, right? And inclusion is all about finding ways to make marginalized groups, women, you know, minority groups, etc., create create these environments and these landscapes that are inclusive of, you know, having groups that have historically been underrepresented, underrecognized, grow into these positions that have historically belonged to um, a very specific subset of, um, you know, demographics. And so when I think about things like sexual harassment and inclusion, a lot of times people even group diversity and inclusion together and they're not the same thing. And sexual harassment and inclusion are really closely linked, hmm. but you know, they're not the they're not the same either. It's you have to have an inclusive environment and sexual harassment's really one component of creating that, making sure that your workplace is free from sexual harassment. Um, you know, helps to create that inclusive environment, but it's not the agenda as a whole what what conversations are we not having surrounding sexual harassment yeah absolutely so you know um as you can tell i'm a pretty big advocate of um you know looking at these communities that are being marginalized in other ways um the the feeling of double marginalization there um the lgbtq community um you know female leadership i think that we're really not having the conversation around you know not just you know not just awareness and education um but really i think that we should be doing a lot more around measurement of culture change, right? I, I think that it would be really incredible if every single company sent out, you know, an annual survey to all of their employees, like, you know, and and kind of did um, a, almost like a, uh, a temperature test, right? Like every year of how do you feel, you know? Um, it's it's anonymized, how are, how are you feeling? You know, do you right. feel comfortable? Do you feel like our culture's changed? Do you feel supported? If not, what can we do? And so I think that, you know, one thing with effectiveness of policies is that you have to see them come from the top down, right? So for in order for a workplace harassment policy to be effective, you have to feel like your executive leadership is bought into it. But I think that we should also look at building that from the ground up. Hmm. So, 
you know, making sure that we're not just assuming efficacy, not just assuming culture change, not just assuming transparency, not just assuming, um, you know, comfort or security or um, respect or any of these other things. And I think that we should actually be looking from the ground up and making sure that our assumptions are validated based on how our employees are responding and feeling. And I think it would be really great if in 10 years that could actually become the norm where that data and that research is, you know, anonymously published, where companies almost have these new standards that they have to hold themselves to. That's that's a very interesting idea. Um, I think it has a lot of potential. Um, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. And uh, listeners, we are always interested in suggestions you might have for what HR Works should cover next. Please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HR Works Podcast with any thoughts or concerns, or if you just want to say hi. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.